This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. Please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu for more information. After refusing to bail out Lehman Brothers, the government agreed to an $85 billion loan to insurance giant AIG, and the government's effectively taking over the company. We talked to Wharton insurance professors Olivia Mitchell and Kent Smetters to find out how the world's largest insurer got into this mess and to ask how it can be prevented from happening again. When we read the stories this morning and listen to interviews on the news, one of the things that strikes me is I haven't heard anyone say that this uh, plan, this government plan, was avoidable. Everybody seems to agree this was a case of uh, a company that was just too big to fail. And I'm curious whether the two of you agree with that. My sense is that the government action was probably necessary in order to try to bring a little bit of confidence back into the financial markets. I don't, however, think it will be sufficient. Um, What it has done is it has allowed the company, AIG, to buy a little bit of time so that it can effectively segregate its good performing assets, that is mainly the insurance and some of the other enterprises under the parent company, from its problem child, which is the insurance of these mortgage-backed securities. And whether that can be accomplished in a period of time, maybe a year to two years, is very much in question. I do think it's delayed the necessity of the company dumping its assets on the market, thereby leading to even greater problems. So it probably was necessary to do that, but I don't think it's the answer for our systemic financial difficulties. And I, and I agree. The real question is, where does it now end because AIG is not the only one who's going to have these problems. In fact, um, the Bear Stearns scenario basically told us that it's good to be first, first in line, grab grab the money. And so the question is, uh, who who's next? And there could be many other players. This could be just a tip of, a, of, of an iceberg. And what type of precedent are we creating by, by doing this? And so it's, it's um, I think, it, as Olivia said, it's a temporary fix. It's not even clear it's going to really bail out AIG. But then what's the next company? What's the next firm? What do we do? Well, one of the uh, questions I haven't seen much of an answer to is to what extent the pressure on the U.S. government to deal with this was, uh, was, was pressure to deal with problems that we would see in the U.S. if nothing were done. And, and to what extent was this coming from the rest of the world? AIG is a sort of a worldwide firm. Uh, was there a sense that we just had to do this uh, as sort of a good citizen of the world? My sense is that, again, the majority of the U.S. operations are pretty pretty strong. And so the failure of AIG would not have directly compromised that. Um, Because the seat of the mortgage-backed security operation was in London, it was primarily to keep the international markets more liquid than they would have been otherwise. I think the domestic concern was actually about the little guy, the individual that has put his money in a mutual fund, believing that mutual funds are just as safe as bank accounts, which of course they're not because they're not insured by the federal government. A lot of mutual funds hold a lot of AIG paper. And in fact, one mutual fund has already so-called broken the buck or ended up losing money 
um, by having held so much AIG securities. And once the little guy starts to have concern about the billions of dollars in the mutual fund business, then you have trouble. So it was intended to help protect the small investor in the U.S. as well as players internationally. Right. I think there's a potential uh, a ripple effect uh, internationally. The, the way I kind of view securitization is it's both the enabler and the savior. And it both enabled this problem by allowing people to divorce the underwriting from the actual risk management. And it, at the same time, it is going to play a role in helping uh, uh, alleviate some of the concentrated pain because it it does create a ripple effect. I mean, it's almost like a rock dropping in the pond. There's a ripple effect that goes out, but it dissipates. And I'm not convinced that the doomsday scenarios that we were hearing in the last 48 hours were actually going to happen. I think it would have been more of a, a ripple effect. But at the same time, um, there is you know, a concern that um, AIG has to start dumping lots of its securities, what would be the macro implications of that? And it was just that uncertainty that I think really drove a, a lot of this. And this uncertainty has, has an effect in many of these markets of taking uh, securities, uh, mortgage-backed securities and other kinds of debt securities, uh, and just, just causing their prices to plummet just because people don't know, not because... Uh, uh, borrowers have defaulted yet, but because people don't know. Is that right? Yeah, I think uh, people place a very high premium on the what's unknown. It's beyond just a normal risk. It's They don't even know the world that they're dealing in anymore. And it's that type of uncertainty that creates a fair amount of, of, of panic. And I think it's um, the, the Fed kind of made a gut call and basically said, you know, we just don't know. It's not something that we're willing to risk at this point. I would add to that the comment that a lot of this is being made up on the fly. So there have been these complicated structured products that have declared default. And even though technically there was a legal way to handle that, the reality came as a bath of cold water. And in fact, everybody who was engaged in the sorting out of the ownership of the pain um, had to make it up on the fly. So that led to a, a stasis in the market. And when the market can't price risk, then you have what we have now, which is a disaster. Um, it's only if we're able to start pricing risk more effectively with a better understanding of what the underlying assets are that, that are uh, supporting those, those securities that we'll be able to get things going again. So that's the grease we need to try to get the wheels moving. I gather that uh, many of these uh, products are, are are sort of customized, and they're traded on a kind of a of a of over the counter market or directly between institutions, so that it's not looking at a sow bellies or a bushels of grain or something like that that's highly standardized. And uh, is that a problem? Is that something that needs to be remedied? A greater standardization so that trading and price discovery is more effective. Well, I think it was generally felt in the market 
that these complicated derivative products were, in fact, well understood because, after all, the rating agencies were charged with delving into their structures and assigning them a financial rating reflective of their risk. What we now realize, in fact, is that the rating agencies were not delving into the underlying securities very effectively, that the entities structuring the products themselves were handling them so quickly that they had neither the time nor even the information technology to record the ownership and the structure. And so, in fact, it was the information system that has let us down. So um, it may be that regulation is a partial solution, but I don't think that's sufficient. What we need is a much more transparent reporting and disclosure structure so that the little guy at the bottom of the line who ends up holding one of these products in his mutual fund can have confidence that, yes, it really is a double A AA or triple A rated security instead of a wolf in sheep's clothing. Yeah, I completely agree with that. I mean, these are what are called 144A placements. They're supposed to be amongst sophisticated institutions. But the rating agencies were supposed to be the stopgap word when you had this divorce between underwriting and the actual bearing of the risk. So people who underwrote the risk resold the risk to other institutions. And the rating agencies were charged with uh, stopping the moral hazard problems are obvious with that when you get to pass off your risk by uh, doing ratings that reflect those risks. And those ratings were supposed to uh, then be reflected in the risk premiums that are charged in those transactions. The, the problem is that the rating agency, as Olivia said, it just used very poor models. They place too much emphasis on things like preferences, who's first in line and different tranches and things like that. Really didn't think about correlated risk, didn't think about rare events, assumed everything was normally distributed and sometimes independent of each other. And so they just really did a poor job. They're great at predicting default with, you know, 24 hours ahead, but not great at predicting default even six months out. They have a pretty poor track record. And so too much emphasis on ratings. Um, it is true some of the contracts required multiple ratings to try to create a hedge, but there's huge correlation amongst those ratings too. And so too much emphasis on poor ratings. And in terms of regulation, I mean, it's a great question. If you believe that the government's going to bail out ex post, um, that creates a this classic what's called Samaritan's Dilemma problem. And so then the question is, should the government start thinking of things ex ante to do? And the issue there, though, is the government has tried that in other things. We have the Pension Benefit Guarantee Corporation that's supposed to insure pensions. Well, the, the government doesn't charge the right type of premiums for those pensions. They're not risk-adjusted and things like that. So the government has some track record of trying to do things ex ante um, to regulate um, things that could actually hurt, uh, impact the average consumer, but its track record isn't particularly strong. I would add to the discussion a comment about the nature of who owns what regulatory responsibility. These credit default swaps are not considered securities that are regulated by the Securities and Exchange Commission. So traditionally, that group has not paid attention. In the U.S., we have a very complicated insurance regulatory scheme where the 50 states have their own insurance regulatory bodies and solvency funds and so forth. But they have not stepped up to focus on these newfangled products. 
Um, so what you really have is a very large segment of the financial market falling between the cracks with nobody responsible for supervising it. And I think this really points to a much bigger issue, which is that we have a need for not even a national financial supervision and regulatory scheme, but a global financial and regulatory scheme. And that, quite frankly, is a difficult thing to bring into play. But this will perhaps start that debate among some of the different entities that might be able to influence and structure such a regulatory environment. What entity is most likely? Is this the uh, International Monetary Fund or the World Bank or something else, something we haven't thought of? I certainly hope not, because they don't have a good track record either. I mean, I think in the short run, what it does is it makes a much stronger case for what's been uh, mulling around in Washington for the last six months, and this is what's called the Optional Federal Charter for Insurance. I think lots of these products are really insurance products, very similar to what's called monoline insurance, where you basically are buying insurance on another company against them defaulting. Um, as Olivia pointed out, under the, the current laws in the U.S., insurance is regulated at the state level, and states are not capable of dealing with these contracts. A lot of the contracts are very complex. They cross state boundaries and, and so forth. And so I think uh, the push for an optional federal charter becomes just all the more stronger now. And clearly with the economies of scale that's achievable with that, that would be a kind of a first um, step, I think, toward creating some type of standardization and some type of rules. And certainly coordination with the EU and other countries on those rules would make a lot of sense. Now, just to step back for a second, what looking at AIG, it, it it was certainly investing in things that other people were investing in. Many companies have run into trouble. Is it, is there a way of sort of dividing how much of the of this collapse is due to market forces that nobody really understood or could control, and how much was just plain old mismanagement? That question is going to be a very difficult one to unravel, and I'm sure a number of good books will will be forthcoming on that uh, theme. The sense is that the majority of the business, the traditional businesses in which AIG has excelled, have been property and casualty, life insurance. They also have a very lucrative airplane leasing operation, which I believe they bought back in 1990. Um, they have um, so they have a mutual fund operation. They have a private banking operation. So it's a quite well diversified company. And from what I can gather, I happen to own a couple shares. Is that they are very productive and very profitable in the majority of those businesses. However, what happened maybe 10 to 12 years ago was this new operation began in London, which was reinsuring the mortgage-backed securities. And it is that entity that has led to the unwinding of the company. Yeah, it's definitely true. The devils are in the details. And unfortunately, until bankruptcy, we don't get access to those details. That's one of the nice outcomes about bankruptcy. We actually get to finally dig into the books and look at even the transaction level under the current rules that those transactions aren't divulged until that point. And so it's really hard to say at at this, and I agree there are probably some really good books written pretty soon on it. Uh, Even saying that, however, the idea that you could put your whole company at risk, this very diversified kind of almost empire at risk with one of your units 
just seems fundamentally bad risk management. Even the most basic value at risk models. I mean, even the ones that I criticize all the time for their naiveness would have said this is really bad risk management. So it does, you know, to me, I'm I'm shocked <laughs> at this, and so it's it is just very perplexing. Well, I think to the layman, you you sort of think that. Yes, there are these new products that are very complex and people don't understand them. But at an absolute minimum, these smart people running these firms ought to know that there are things they don't know. Is that right? And and play it safe because of that. But they just weren't. Well, as I am fond of telling my students, there's no such thing as living without risk. There's an ancient Chinese proverb that was told to me that the couple who goes to bed early to save candles ends up with twins, which simply <laughs> goes to show that there's there's always something unexpected. What I find very telling, though, is that what we're seeing now is supposed to happen you know, once in a thousand years or once in a hundred years. And unfortunately, these perfect storm events where the confluence of rare and unusual circumstances happens only rarely is becoming much more common. So I think we're going to have to start looking at reshaping the models of risk and predicting uncertainty in a much more sophisticated fashion. It's not that I think we need to dump modeling, because after all, that's a way of structuring what you know and what you don't know. But risk modeling with more sophisticated uh, correlations across different events, understanding that the global market is much more tightly bound together than it ever was in the past, all those are considerations that are going to keep the modelers busy for some time. It sounds like uh, global warming causing more severe hurricanes is sort of the same thing. We're, we're understanding that these international markets are more complex and more interconnected than we realized. Or is it that they're more interconnected than they were before? I mean, it, it, globalization is a really good thing on one hand. It allows you to spread risk much better than you, we've ever ha- had before. I mean, if this if we witnessed the same events during the past five years – 30 years ago, Katrina, which hit a major port, 9-11, increases in oil prices, and all these types of other events, and the, currently the recent subprime, I mean, we would our economy would be in, in devastating shape. We would be Great Depression, if not more so. Um, but securitization, globalization has allowed for a lot of diversification. The problem is, is that that same tool has also allowed for a lot of cockiness, and through Area, through leveraging. So the idea is I can pass off my risk. I therefore get some type of premium for that. Well, I don't get very much because those other guys can't really bear it much better than me. I just get a little bit. So what do I do? I go out and leverage that up, borrow a bunch of money, say that I have a low beta portfolio. And so I just jack that up with lots of borrowing. And then just small little changes. Um, uh, I have a portfolio that's actually very sensitive to small, what's called idiosyncratic changes. Those things happen. I wasn't expecting those things to happen. And the whole house of cards comes falling down. And so it's both, I think, securitization, globalization is, again, both the enabler and the savior. On one hand, it really enabled some cockiness. On the other hand, it also means it's going to dissipate a lot of the pain that otherwise would be very concentrated. 
Now, we hear the term uh, bailout used pretty loosely these days. And in fact, in this case, uh, as in some of the others recently, the shareholders are pretty much wiped out. Uh, the top executives are losing their jobs. Uh, has there been uh, enough sort of punishment uh, for, for the people who were ultimately responsible for this company to discourage uh, misbehavior in the future? I think the ultimate question gets to who should pay and what should be learned from this exercise. The Fannie and Freddie bailout, if we want to call it that, was an attempt in part to help homeowners who had mortgage problems. But it was also a very clear attempt to protect foreign governments, many of whom held a lot of Fannie and Freddie bonds. And if those had gone down, there would be huge international repercussions. I, I've understood that China has 10% of its GDP in those bonds, Fannie and Freddie bonds. And the consequences for international relations of having a big loss there would be enormous. Um, Big companies are obviously losing. As you said, management is losing as well. The question down the road is, um, who's going to pay for all this? And that's something that has not been clearly enunciated by anyone on the deal-making side. So, for example, how much will taxpayers potentially be on the hook for Freddie and Fannie? Nobody honestly knows the number. And how will that tax burden be levied on current workers, current retirees, future workers? Nobody's owning up to who's going to have to pay the price. So what troubles me very much in this whole discussion is the notion that we'll bail out this company and that company, but what will be the consequences for what we cannot do as a nation going forward? Social Security and Medicare are facing... a approximately a $77 trillion shortfall. Not today, but in the next many years. Who's going to pay that bill? We simply have been unwilling to face the burden of the the risks that we're taking on. And I find that to be politically reprehensible. I completely agree. I mean, the government's using some serious black powder dealing with this problem where you have entitlement problems, you have the PBGC that's in shortfalls. The entitlement problems are just uh, orders of magnitude bigger than, than this problem. So you have a kind of a troika, perfect storm. You have these three things that we really face. In some sense, they're somewhat correlated that it, people, if their personal assets get wiped out, put even more uh, pressure on, on the entitlement programs, harder to reform those, more pressure on pen, the uh, public pension guarantees, uh, the PBGC. So it's, I think, a, a very difficult problem. We face a very serious hurdle going forward. Our federal budget system doesn't allow for proper accounting of these, these things. We really don't recognize the pain that uh, we're going to be facing in the next decade or so. And so I think the first step is just a lot more transparency, a lot more honesty about these numbers, putting them on the federal budget and kind of owning up to, to it. And finally, I just want to ask a question for uh, all us little guys. If, if I have an insurance policy with an AIG company uh, as a result of this government takeover, am I okay or do I have to worry about it? It 
for the most part, you're, you're okay. I mean, they, the insurers are likely um, gonna gonna work fine on personal lines. So it's uh, it, there is a scenario where the holding company going under or having some serious problems could impact its subsidiaries there. Uh, dealing with insurance, especially given that the, under this New York plan that there were going to be a lot to borrow against the capital reserves and so forth. But for the most part, they're probably okay. And now the issue is, even if they go under, at least in the life and the annuity side, they, every state has um, guarantees. Um, that, and they range from one state to another. Um, California, the guarantee is as low as $250,000. That is, if your life benefit, um, death benefit is uh, up to $250,000, they'll guarantee payment. New York, it goes all the way up to $500,000. In Pennsylvania here, it's 300000 And so on the annuity side, they'll guarantee up to a present value of $100,000. In terms of the other property and casualty, those are pretty easy to switch out of. You can cancel your homeowner's contract, your auto contract, and easily get get out of those. And so I think in terms of the insurance side, people are going to be fine. Well, what about the uh, the cash value types of, of uh, policies that were supposed to gain value and have an investment component? Are those still safe as well? That's a bigger question because, as Kent pointed out, there are caps on the amount that's guaranteed by the state solvency fund. And so that does, in fact, raise an issue of what the unfolding of those will be. Well, I guess the bottom line is there's a lot still to find out about what's going on here. The story's not over. It's really just beginning, isn't it? Thank you very much. Thank you, sir. Pleasure. For more information, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.